0: Well, thanks for having me back. It's a privilege to be with you guys again. You can open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 and 21. So this is a bit of an odd passage to come and preach at a, as a guest preacher. Um, but our church is going through a series uh, called Good News, so it's just gospel-rich text. Um, so we'll be looking at how this passage relates to the gospel a bit in the sermon. Um, so you'll hear that a bit as, as we go through the text. Um, but let's look at the word first. So Revelation chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 7 and go to chapter 21, verse 8. So verse 20, chapter 20, verse 7 to 21, 8. Hear what Holy Scripture says. And when the thousand years are ended... And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, you know each of our hearts and where we are spiritually this morning. And so we turn to you and we ask you to, to speak to us and to work in us. That which is pleasing to you and good for our souls and for eternity in Jesus name Amen so what is it about running that gets some people so excited you say to a friend well let's wear some bright colors and some tight clothes and let's go sweat around the neighborhood well that sounds like a great idea I guess but sometimes people are really into it and they're running really hard and you see the look on their face and it looks like they're subjecting themselves to to some cruel and unusual punishment. But they still do it. So we have to ask, why run at all? Well, some people run to stay physically fit and keep their bodies healthy. Others run for exercise to get back into shape. And there's some really strange people out there who run simply because they enjoy it. You know who you are. So people push themselves because there's a payoff, there's a benefit, there's a reward to running. Whatever the benefit that they're looking for, that's what helps, helps them endure each painful step. Their body tells them, let's go back to the couch, but they go step after step and endure it. They remember that there's a goal and what the result of their running will be, and so they keep going. Well, that's what our passage is for Christians this morning. John's received a vision of the end times, and he's given it to the early church in order to help them keep running he tells them keep going look at what will be look at what's coming see the reward see the payoff see the warning the cost the price of giving up and keep going so how does John do that in our verses well he gives the church three pictures of what the end will be like and he tells them you must keep running John says weary Christians look ahead Look here at this picture. Here are your enemies. Or here, look, here are your peers. Or here, look, here's a picture of you, and you're full of joy. John says, see, it's worth it. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Keep repenting. Keep running, and you will find life. So what are these three pictures that John has for the early church? That's what we'll be looking at in our text. So we're going to go through three pictures. The first is complete conquest that's from chapter 20 verses 7 to 10 complete conquest the second is pervasive judgment pervasive judgment that's from chapter 20 verses 11 to 15 and then the third will be eternal adoption chapter 21 verses 1 to 8 eternal adoption so let's jump into our first point complete conquest so as we go through these verses it's important for us to remember the nature of the book we're reading the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. So it's one of the genres in the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the word genre, it's just like in the library, you go and there's different sections of different books. Um, and so there's different genres of writing in the Bible. So knowing whether you're reading poetry, or narrative, or prophecy, or wisdom literature is very important when you're interpreting scripture. It's like, for example, reading the Chronicles of Narnia as non-fiction Well, you're going to start looking in your wardrobe for hidden magical worlds, right? So you need to know the genre of the book you're reading. So as we approach Revelation, we must remember that these are images, pictures, and symbols of real, literal things. However, the pictures and symbols are not literal themselves. They simply depict what something will be like. They tell us about an object or being or time, not the literal size, shape, or look of it. So our passage starts us off with one of the most controversial debates in Christian teaching. So look with me at verse 7, it says when the thousand years are ended. So the thousand years are referring to chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 and these verses speak of a thousand year reign of Christ. So many debate the timing and the nature of these thousand years and what, that's, what that passage is meant to signify. Uh, but thankfully that's not our passage for us this morning. So it's sufficient for us to know that what we find in our passage is after the thousand years. That is to say, no matter your eschatological view, this will be the end result. So I have no interest um, in hinting about or defending a specific view. So let's consider these three pictures unhindered from those verses before. So what then is this picture that John has for us? John introduces the first character, Satan. And one of our uh, summer interns that we have at our church, when we were looking at this passage, she asked, Why in the world would they let him out of prison? Whose idea was that? So that's obviously a great question. We might not know the nature of Satan's imprisonment or the exact happenings of it, but we do know the purpose and what he comes out to do. So look at verse 8. Satan comes out of prison with the express purpose to deceive the nations. Friends, we must be aware that the goal of the devil is to deceive. To deceive, He deceived Adam and Eve, and he's deceived each of us at varying times in our lives to sin and turn away from God. So here again, Satan sets out to deceive the nations. He's not just after one corner of the globe, one people group, or one area. No, he's after the entire world. So the text mentions after that, Gog and Magog this is a reference to Israel's enemies in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 but again this language isn't literal it's not these literal nations though no, it's to tie back to the prophecy but also in John's writing um, or in the rabbinic circles of John's time these this phrase was used to refer to the nations that would oppose God or that in Psalm 2 talks about raging against God and his anointed so verse 8 ends with Gog magog satan and all of god's enemies gathered around the city look at the look at the words that's used Their numbers like the sand of the sea friends god is opposed now and he will be opposed in the end by numbers that are unimaginable to us uncountable unfathomable so the stage is set verse 9 the armies of satan march up to the camp of the saints Imagine for a minute how this could unfold. Billions of people and evil spiritual forces all gathered surrounding the people of God, surrounding the city of God. And some of the saints may feel defeat before the battle begins. Others quake at the sound of the armies. Others get ready to fight for God. And yet what happens? Verse nine tells us, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Wait, that's it? Just like that, it's over. They're gone, the battle's finished before it even began. This is like going to a movie. Now that the theaters are open, you can do that again. So going to a movie, you've been waiting for this movie for years. It's the end of a series and you want all your questions to be answered. This is the climax of all the drama that's unfolded so far. So you get your popcorn, you get your drink, you sit in your chair, and before your first handful of popcorn gets to your mouth, the movie's over. It's done. That's it. You missed it. Or like a scene, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, Ant-Man. Ant-Man and Yellow Jacket are able to shrink down to insect size, right? So they're fighting on a kid's train table, throwing trains at one another. And then I think uh, Yellow Jacket gets knocked off the train. He's on the tracks and the train's about to hit him. You're waiting for him to get crushed by the train and he gets hit and the train just derails and falls off because it's a toy. Train. So you wanted him to get crushed and defeated, but it was anticlimactic. Nothing happened. So what's John doing by showing us this picture? Why is he building up the suspense just to take the air out of our wings? Well, I think John's trying to show us the immense power of our God over Satan. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. There's no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. Friends, our God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. No foe can stand against him. No army can approach him. No enemy can defeat him. Victory always has and always will belong to our God. So Christian, behold the enemy of your soul chaff before our God, the consuming fire. So who shall we fear if God is on our side? The camp of the saints The beloved city stands secure against any threat, against any number of enemies, because of the omnipotent power of God that protects her. Friends, the final defeat of Satan is profoundly good news for weary Christians. Not only that, I think there's a reason that this battle is so anticlimactic. This battle was already finished when our king rose from the dead. Colossians says it this way, The gospel is good news, not just because your sins are forgiven, not just because your debt has been been paid for, not just because you've been brought from death to life. This gospel is good news because through Jesus' death and resurrection, the enemies of God have once and for all been crushed. They have been put to open shame. They have been disarmed. They have been triumphed over in Christ. Christians, there is no force, no power, no being that can stand between you and your God. Jesus has conquered all forces of evil through his death and resurrection. So we may feel the pains of their presence yet. We may see the effects of their deception. We may watch as the world gathers to oppose Christ. But let us not lose heart. Our King has conquered and he will fully conquer and finally in the end look where Jesus sends the enemy of our soul in verse 10 says the devil is thrown into the lake of fire joining the beast and the false prophet where all three will be tormented day and night the beast and false prophet were thrown in back in chapter 19 verses 20 to 21 so from the lake of fire there is no rescue there's no escape only eternal torment for those thrown in this is the first picture that john shows us the picture of god's victorious power and the final defeat of satan but in john's second picture we watch as more people are thrown into that same fiery lake so let's look at those second set of verses verses 11 to 15. this picture is a picture of pervasive judgment so john now sets us before god himself on a great white throne. The white symbolizes the purity of God. There's no stain of sin on this throne. His power and authority are felt as earth and sky flee his presence. And all that remain in this picture are the dead standing before God. Then books are brought forward, opened, examined. You can imagine with me, an angel takes a book and says, here are the works of the saints in Canada in 2021. Here are their sins. Here are their failings. Here's where they compromised. Here's where they lied. Here's where they gossiped. Here's, here, this chapter, they hated one another. Here they were immoral. Friends, the books of God contains the works contain the works of all humanity, great and small, old and young, and they will be weighed out against the perfect commands of the law. We believe in a gospel that's not works-based. But here we see a judgment that is works-based. It says both in verse 12 and verse 13 that they will be judged according to what they had done. And yet there remains another book. Verse 12 tells us there was another book opened, the book of life. So as they go through name by name, works by works, anyone whose name was written in the book of life was free from the judgment of God. But woe to the one whose name was not written in the book of life. They were thrown into the lake of fire. Behold the pervasive judgment of God. Imagine the feelings of all your sins uncovered before God and being judged, being held accountable for them. You can imagine a teenager being caught lying to their parents in the shame and guilt they might feel, the panic they might feel as they realize they've been caught. Or an employee who was caught stealing at work what they might feel being confronted by their boss. There's a familiar story for us in the Old Testament where David's confronted in a similar way. Nathan, God's prophet, approaches him and tells him a story about a man who does wicked things. And David condemns the man. Only to have Nathan tell him, you are that man, David. And in that moment, David's sin was uncovered. His heart was laid bare. He could not run. He could not hide from his sins. He was confronted with the sinfulness of his actions. And he had to deal with the consequences. Friends, let each one of us be sure that our names are in that book of life. As we get to the end and realize that we'll be judged according to our works. We simply cannot earn our way into heaven. We cannot stand before the judgment of God. But we can find solace in the book of life. The letter to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 warns the church to wake up, remember the gospel, and repent of their sins, and to walk with Christ. And as a result, Jesus promises them, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Friends, the judgment of God is fierce. It is pervasive, and there is only one way to be free from it. You must turn to the Lamb, repent of your sins, and follow Him in faith. So just as we saw God's omnipotence, his all Him being all-powerful in our first point, here we see that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. There's no hiding place from the gaze of our God. There's no work, no sin, no deed, no words that He is not aware of. Friends, let us not take sin lightly. Let us not think God doesn't see or he doesn't know. He does know and he beckons us, repent, return to me and find life. This passage mentions death and Hades as a holding place for the dead. All of the dead are given up and the judgment of God is completely comprehensive. So all are judged by their works and receive the subsequent consequences. Death and Hades, as well as those who are not found in the book of life, are thrown into the lake of fire. And John mentioned this is the second death. This is it, the final ending place, the eternal home of all who do not embrace Christ, the lake of fire. Remember this isn't a literal lake of fire, no, it's a place that can be best described as a lake of fire, a place of continual torment and unrest and eternal burning. This is the end of sin. One author talks about sin this way. In short, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. We may go on and say it is the rebuke of his providence, the scoff of his promise, the reproach of his wisdom. And as is said of the man of sin, it opposes and exalts itself above all that is God. Sin is no small thing. It only leads to death and so we ought to treat it with a holy fear. So how have you talked about sin this week? Have you treated it as vile, as evil, as dangerous? Or have we turned it into a household pet to be played with and tamed? If our family members or co-workers or friends or neighbors Knew the eternal consequences of their actions, would they continue in them? Maybe we ought to be quicker to tell them about the judgment that's coming and the way to be saved from it. Death, Hades, all who are in the book of life are thrown, or all who are not in the book of life, are thrown into the lake of fire. The enemy has been vanquished, and now the world has been cleansed. The good news of the gospel includes the eradication of all sin and all who are in sin. This is profoundly good news. This is the only way we can make it to the third picture that John goes to, and to the final purpose of the Gospel. We simply cannot dwell with God if stains of sin remain on us. We must be made white like He is, through the work of His Son, that we we can dwell with Him forever. So God frees us and the world from the power And the presence of sin forever in these first two pictures. Death is vanquished as there is no longer sin. So the curse from Genesis 3 is finally reversed through this judgment of God. But how does this second point help us run? Well it's just like a sign on a path that says falling rocks ahead. Or steep cliffs on this side. Or bears are here from May to October. The second point warns us of dangers of leaving the path. It calls us to hold fast to the Lamb and to treat sin as costly. It reminds us that though sin may entice us, the stench of eternal fires always lingers close behind. So may we be vigilant to keep running and call others to run with us. So we've seen the enemies of God conquered, evildoers punished, but what about those whose name are in the Book of Life? What will they receive? Well, that's where John goes with the third picture. Let's look at chapter 21 verses 1 to 8. Here John introduces the new heavens and the new earth as the first had passed away. He sees Jerusalem coming out of heaven dressed as a bride. And a proclamation is it comes from the throne of God. One of my favorite parts of a wedding ceremony is the proclamation of the new couple. They've been dating, They've gotten engaged, they're planning, they're working, they're excited, and finally they're going through the wedding ceremony on that day. And they get to that point and everyone gets to watch as they're finally announced husband and wife. Well, how much more anticipation will there be in this moment? In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. He created the world and he walked with his people. But for thousands of years, sin has kept God from His people. God worked through patriarchs, through prophets, through priests, all to try and dwell with His people. Yet sin plagued every relationship between God and man. Then comes Christ, who obeys God perfectly, and He lives and dies without sinning. And He pays for the sins of God's people, saving all who would come to Him. So now the outcome is secure. But here we are, the already not yet. Saved and yet still stained by sin. Restored and yet still repenting. Redeemed and yet returning to sinful ways. But here now in Revelation 21, we've made it. Friends, hear the climactic call from the throne of God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them As their God friends the good news of the gospel is that we get to be with God the presence of God where fullness of joy is we get to experience unabated behold the end of the gospel not the conclusion of it but the final accomplishment of it John Piper says it like this, The highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. The saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely Himself. Friends, the goal of the gospel is communion, is unity with God Himself. And look what happens when we dwell with God in verse 4. It says, God will wipe away every tear. Death will be gone forever. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. The place your soul most earnestly longs for even now isn't here. It's not on this world. It's not a vacation. It's not anything you can find here. It's the presence of God. So you can try and satisfy your soul with samplings of the world, but they will only fall short. You will keep craving until you turn to the presence of God, where all your trials will end on that day, and you will know everlasting joy forever. The eternal kingdom of God is completely and utterly new. Verse 4 ends telling us the former things have passed away, and verse 5 gives us the very words of God. I am making all things new. God goes on to say, it is done. On the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Friends, the end of the gospel is an eternal dwelling place with God that cannot be thwarted. Yahweh himself has said, it is done. So take heart, Christian. You will find eternal joy and rest. Our passage ends with two contrasting lives and rewards. The first option is to come drink from the water of life without payment. All are invited to come and receive the forgiveness of their sins and receive this eternal life with God. All you have to do is come to him. And yet verse 8 warns us anyone who embraces sin will end up in the lake of fire the second death. A close examination of this list will undoubtedly find that each of us are there somewhere. The reality, reality is, if we're given to our sins in a way that shows our heart isn't united to Christ and His purposes, then we do belong on such a list. But before we go doubting our salvation, let me remind you that there is a free offering of the water of life, which most of you have already embraced. So your sins now, as a believer, are indeed grievous towards God, but they will not separate you from Him. Keep repenting, keep returning to Him, and you will be forgiven, and your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Friends, the glories of eternity are wondrous, but so the dangers of sin are treacherous. So we must hear these warnings from John, and patiently endure all things holding fast to the message of the gospel and the hope of eternal adoption into God's family. God didn't create you, send Jesus to die for you, simply because He felt bad for you. No, He did all that because He loves you with a steadfast, immovable, unshakable, eternal love. Friends, God's will is not for you to come and live in heaven and just be, see Him from a distance. God's not interested in, in a long-distance relationship with His people. He wants sweet communion. Think about the language used in this picture. Jerusalem's prepared as a bride for her groom. Or verse 7 says, The one who conquers will be my son. The good news of the gospel isn't just saved from sin. No, it's saved from sin and saved unto God himself. Christian, you must keep up the faith, continue running because at the end comes eternal joyful delight and perfect communion with God. The third picture John presents us with is one of eternal bliss secured by the Alpha and the Omega, completely finished and final, full of glorious unity with God, free from sin and all its bitter fruit. This picture would not be possible without the first two. Satan defeated. Death, Hades, and all evildoers punished. God's finally able to dwell with his people again. Now now that we've seen those three pictures from John, let me close with three brief words of application. From the first point, do not fear the enemies of God. Remember, God is all-powerful. From the second point, Ensure your name is in the book of life by holding fast to the gospel. Remember, God is all-knowing. And from the third point, eternal joy and rest await, so don't give up. So the question remains, how shall we endure persecution, pain, suffering, trials, difficulty? Well, it's by looking at what Christ has secured through the gospel. The full and final defeat of evil. And the eternal enjoyment of the very presence of God. That's what we need to help us run. And that's the pictures that John shows us. Let's pray to close. Father, we ask that these pictures would not fade quickly from our minds. But rather you would fix our gaze and our hearts on what Christ has done through the gospel and what he has secured. That we would run. We would run in a way that would make much of you and what you're doing. And in a way that would bring life to ourselves and to those around us. So would you continue to work now through these pictures and these words. In Jesus' name, Amen.